Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And my guest today is a prolific, incredibly prolific director of film and television, having directed But I'm a Cheerleader and Itty Bitty Titty Committee before moving on to a major career directing television. And get this, she's directed episodes of Gilmore Girls, Malcolm in the Middle, Looking, Nip Tuck, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, as well as one of my favorite series of the past couple of years, Russian Doll. I love that show so much. Jamie Babbitt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hey, don't forget the L word. Come oh, on. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. Well, I couldn't include every, you have had quite a career. Like there are a lot, like, you know, you look on the IMDb for you and it's like, there's a list, man. You've had a lot. Like, why don't you we take it back? Like, tell me like, because you you had done a number of shorts, and I know this because my short film was running around the festivals, and it was in this, I, I, I think it was in 98, and basically it was in these programs, and then what would happen is a lot of them, some of them were digital, most of them were 16 millimeter, and then they would stop everything. They would change it to a 35 millimeter projector with a scope lens. You shot a damn short in CinemaScope. You made us all look bad, and I always wanted to say like, Whenever my short was programmed in a bunch of shorts with that short that you did, I forget what it was called. It had one word in the title. Stuck. Yes. It was It was really good and it was gorgeous and they had these helicopter shots and it was like this cinemascope short and everyone was like, oh my God, that's a movie. So I will tell you the funny thing about Stuck, that short film, is it was shot by the cinematographer who does The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You're kidding. That's so yeah. fantastic. And it's, yeah. it's it's a stunning look. I mean, you had done several shorts before, but I'm a cheerleader. Yes, I did. Uh, my first short was a short called Discharge. Uh, that looked like shit. It was super eight. <laughs> um, so, hey, I have done a shitty, shitty looking short. And then I worked on the crew for a lot of big Hollywood movies and for example, I worked on the game with David Fincher. Oh my God! And Such when a good I movie. was when I was working on the crew, I said to David, "Hey, he was married to his uh, producer." And I said, "Sion, right? Yeah, Sion Chafin. Yeah." And so I said to Sion and David, "Hey, can I have the short ends?" from the game so that when the movie's over, I can make a short film. So the reason I always was shooting on this awesome 35 millimeter cinemascope was because I was getting the footage from the filmmakers that I was working for, for free. One of the things, one of the reasons I so wanted to have you on the season one of The Outcast is because you are a filmmaker who came up, who really just kind of pulled it together and made a career like out of whole, you really did it. You like, and this is one of those stories, like you hear about filmmakers taking short ends and making whole movies out of them. I think Robert Rodriguez did it for, I don't know yeah. who he stole his footage from, but it was someone. I mean, one of the ways that like when we were shooting on film stock back in the, back in the love days of celluloid uh, it still exists but generally not um is that big shows would have what's called short ends which is like unfinished rolls of film that they would not have shot and they would get rid of them resell them or in case of jamie you know give them to to pas and and people on the set and uh but that's fantastic because i love the game and now i now I want to see the short again. I literally haven't seen it since it was running around the film festival circuit. Well, the movie that was made after the game is Sleeping Beauties. Oh, okay. So the order of my shorts, you can see them on J- 
jamiebabbitt.com, my website. I put them up there. They're on YouTube too, I think. But um, Stuck was my first short, which I made in a film class uh, in New York. And then I made Sleeping Beauties, which starred Clea Duvall. And that I made off of the film stock from the game. And I was able to get a lot of free stuff from the game, like the costumes. And I got access to shooting at Paramount. Uh, and it was all because I was working with David Fincher and Michael Douglas on this movie for six months. So I got to know them really well and basically used that to, you know, get a lot of stuff. So it's a very pretty short. Um, and that was my first short that went to Sundance was Sleeping Beauties. Um, and it was a retelling of the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale told from like a lesbian femme perspective. And that was like 99, um, correct? No, no, it was earlier. It was like 96. I think it was in Sundance in 96. Oh, wow. And by the way, it played at the girls' shorts program at Outfest. Oh. And I was so excited. It was Friday night. I got the prime slot. And I will forever be grateful to Outfest because what a fun night it was. And I got to screen at the DGA Theater and I got a giant packed audience of lesbians. And then there was a party after. And at the time, um, I had made Sleeping Beauties, uh, my friend Angela had made Angela Robinson, who directed Debs. And she is she... lovely. I've had a couple of lovely dinners with her on the festival circuit many years ago, but, but before she uh, before she blew up, when she was just running around with a short of Debs, which was, I, I will say, a lot more explicit than the feature, and I kind of enjoyed that about it. I wanted the feature to be more R-rated. Me too. I love Debs the short. But before Debs the short, she had made another short film called The Kinsey Three, which was about three bisexual art thieves. And so we were doing the festival circuit together, me with Sleeping Beauties, her with the Kinsey Three. And it was so fun. And I remember, I think I got into the girls' shorts program, which was like the best program to get into. And she was programmed before a feature. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember she was kind of disappointed because the better night was the girls' shorts program. <laughs> anyway, all these memories were going through my brain because I went uh, this year to Calamigos Ranch and saw the girls' short program on Friday night, this last Friday night. I, I was there last night, as a matter of fact. It's so wonderful to see short films in a drive-in and it just brought back all these memories of how excited I was to screen my short for a big audience of lesbians. We're, we're talking, it's it's uh, the end of August, the very end of August, uh, 2020, and uh, Outfest just concluded and uh, I am very impressed with how they pulled it together in the year of the pandemic between their digital uh, initiative and uh, these drive-in events uh, up at Calamigos Ranch, which are like, was just lovely, magical evenings. And for a minute, it felt like, you know, normal again. Yeah, I thought it was really magical and a real blessing for the filmmakers to get a very hungry audience for gay content under the stars in Malibu. It was a beautiful setting and a real tribute to the power of queer cinema in times of need, which certainly in the quarantine were all so isolated. And it was wonderful to be with so many queer people all in one space. So we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of But I'm a Cheerleader, which makes, I don't know about you, it makes me feel like, oh my God, like I remember when this movie came out. I remember when this movie happened and everyone was talking about it. It is a, if you haven't seen it, it's just adorable and lovely and you can find it on streaming. Um, Natasha Leone plays a girl who uh, is taken to conversion therapy because her parents and friends 
thinks she's a lesbian. For whatever it's worth, the character doesn't seem to, seems very confused by this. Um, although she comes to realize that everybody is right and she actually is a lesbian. But in conversion therapy, she meets Cleo Duvall. And I want to talk about Cleo Duvall because she's been, you know, she was in your shorts. Did you, were you friends with her? Did you find her? How did, how did your, how did your involvement with Clea come up? Because I love her to death. Clea is an incredible actor, very understated and sexy and smoldering, but beautiful and... I was so lucky. I basically was spending a lot of time at the Lemley Sunset Five when I first moved to LA because I loved indie movies. And every time I would go see an indie movie, I would go down to Buzz Coffee, which was right uh, next to the movie theater. Right. And there was this really cute, butch, uh, very young barista named Clea. And Lana Turner was discovered there. So you discovered Clea Duvall and Buzz Coffee there as a barista. Yeah, like- and... I always loved going to Buzz Coffee. I was uh, dating at that time, and we were together for 14 years and had two kids and uh, are still close friends and work together, Andrea Sperling, my girlfriend. Um, But we were always like, oh, this girl is so cute, this barista. And she would always give us free coffee, which was awesome. (laughs) And we were talking about lesbian stuff, and I had just moved to L.A., and she was like, yeah, I live in Hollywood. And we were like, we live in Hollywood. And so we started hanging out, and I was like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And she was like, well, I think she was 17 at the time. Oh, my God. Um, And I think I was like 23. And um, she said, I want to be an actor. And I went to the Hollywood uh, high school, the one on Fairfax, right. with, like pictures of Judy Garland and stuff. And um, I want to be an actor. And I said, well, do you have an agent? And she said, I do. Um, the only person that this agent represents besides me is the Where's the Beef lady. Clara Peller. So it was Clara Peller and Clea Duvall were her clients. And... <laughs> I said, well, I want to be a director. And she said, oh, cool. And anyway, we just started hanging out. And at that time in L.A., there was a really popular coffee shop that all lesbians went to. Buzz Coffee was not a gay coffee shop per se. Right. But there was this gay coffee shop with Melissa Etheridge's ex-girlfriend owned it called Little Frida's. And it was on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. It's now a nail salon. Um, but she, Melissa Etheridge's ex, she ran Little Frida's and it was certainly the coffee shop that the L word was based on because it was, (laughs) uh, as in Frida Kahlo. Um, and there were a lot of live musicians and poetry readings and Riot Girl music was all the rage. This was the nineties. And so Clea and Andrea, my girlfriend and I would go to Little Frida's and meet girls and listen to music and talk about politics and talk about our dreams of being feminist artists and punk rock heroes to women. And basically, yeah, we just became really good friends. And then when I was working on the game and I got this film stock, I was like, okay, I want to make a movie. And Clea to me felt very much like a Prince Charming and so Andrea had just uh, produced a Greg Rocky movie at the time with this wonderful actress, Sarah Lassay, who vaguely looked like me. So I cast Sarah Lassay as the Sleeping Beauty and uh, Clea as the Prince Charming. And uh, yeah, made this kind of weird fairy tale short 
which got into Sundance in 1996. And when I went with the short, uh, Clea had just starred in her first indie movie, which was playing in competition at Sundance. Oh, wow. Um, And it was a director named Kip. I can't remember what the movie was called, but she was so great in the film and it was in competition. I don't even know if it got a release, but Sundance was kind of discovering her, which was great. And then she ended up getting the Robert Rodriguez movie and um, Melissa Painter, someone I knew, ended up casting her in this Daryl Hannah movie. So she just said, like, she kind of blossomed um, around the same time she was in my short. And so... She was really uh, auditioning a lot and get booking a lot of movies. And I said, hey, Clea, you know, the short was so successful. Let's be at Sundance next year and you'll be the star of the movie that I'm going to write and direct. <laughs> and she was like, well, I'm a little worried about doing something so gay because, you know, I'm just worried that my career is going to be over before it starts. Right. And I it was said, the 90s. That's everyone, every actor who was gay felt that way. Like you can hear that from any actor that was in anything in the 90s. Yeah. But it was funny because I think Cleo was a real cusp actor because she also was living a very out gay life. And like she had brought a girl to prom um, at her high school. So she was very out in her day to day life and with all of her friends. So I was like, oh, come on, Clea, you can do it. And she was like, all right, well, I'll do it, but I'm not going to be out in the press. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Right. Um, and so she ended up being able to do, like, the cover of Out magazine. And we did a ton of press for But I'm a Cheerleader. And we did gay pride and marching and all kinds of stuff. But she never overtly said she was gay. So that was sort of the cusp moment where it was she was sort of half in, half out. In order to make But I'm a Cheerleader, it was originally budgeted at, what, 500000 It was originally... So basically, I got Sleeping Beauties into Sundance, and I was like, you know what? I had been to Sundance before with a film that I co-directed called Frog Crossing, like, I think the year before, maybe two years before. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the week of Sundance, people really care about short filmmakers. And then... A month after Sundance, they've moved on to something else. (laughs) So I was like, okay, this is the second time I'm going to Sundance with a short. I made a mistake the last time where I didn't have my next project ready. In in hand, just hand it to them, Yeah, so I was like, no matter what, even if it's not totally done, I'm going to have a feature script ready to go. And Clea can star in it and they can watch Sleeping Beauties and very easily make the jump to this is what the next movie is going to be. So I was at a Hollywood, like, assistant party, because here I am, like, 25, 24. And so it was all assistants. And I was asking around, hey, does anyone know a writer who might be willing to write um, a gay comedy about gay rehab? Um, Like, you know, uh, conversion therapy rehab. And um, I met this girl at a party who just graduated from USC grad school for writing. And she said, you know what? There was one gay gentleman who was in my class and he wrote a script about a gay football player. We graduated last year. I think he's still working at USC as an assistant to the dean. Um, Here's his info. You should contact him because he seems like he might be right for it. 
So I called him and I was like, hey, can we meet at a coffee shop in WeHo? And basically at the coffee shop, I said, here's all my research on Exodus International. There's a documentary. Um, these are the characters. This is the basic story. Here's act one. Here's act two. Act Here's act three. And do you think you could write this? I have no money. Um, but I have a deadline, which is the Sundance Film Festival, and it's three months away. Right. Do you think you could finish a first draft of the script by Sundance? Because I really think I can get it made, but I need to have the first draft at Sundance. And he actually FedExed me the first draft of But I'm a Cheerleader to Sundance. Um, and obviously we did 1 million rewrites after that as we were going into production, but that, but first, it was the basis you had it the, was basis. the basis. Yeah. yeah. And that was Brian Wayne Peterson. And, um, he wanted to kill me by the time we were shooting. Cause I <laughs> literally think it would mean it was no money. And I think he did like 40 drafts or something. I mean, it was totally insane. <laughs> Um, and neither one of us are in the union. So like, we've never gotten a dime from that movie, but it started both of our careers and he has a really nice television career too. So maybe he'll be a future podcast. <laughs> one of the things we should talk about also is the, the production design, which is so cute and poppy. I love and... David LaChapelle. His photo books were really popular at the time. And there's also these two gay artists, Pierre Gilles. Yes. You know their stuff. Yeah. Yes. I, very... <laughs> I, uh, go, go check out their images if you're listening and you haven't. Pierre Gilles, uh, J or G I L L E. Yes. Yes. You, yeah. ha you have to. It's really like if you're not familiar, you need to. Yeah. Anyway, beautiful gay artists who do very erotic, sometimes nude, young, beautiful gay men in a very stylized world that they create with like flowers and backdrops. And um, there's this other movie that I absolutely loved that was on bootleg at the time called Pink Narcissus. Yes. They did um, stranded a remaster uh, of that a few years ago. It's a very awesome. important gay film by a, uh, an artist uh, named James Bidgood. Um, who was not even credited in the film due to all sorts of drama at the time. But uh, it's a gorgeous, poppy, like shot on Super 8 and 16 millimeter, but mostly on Super 8, if you can believe that. Uh, colors that like just like, like and nudity and, and the gorgeousness of this adorable man who was, had to be like 19 or 20. Uh, who's, you know, largely without clothes, but, you know, just just enough that's covered. Um, but it's it's a very important gay movie and it's so hot and erotic and beautiful and very pink very um so i was really into pink narcissus i was into derek jarman who also had really um beautiful gay stories in this fantasy world edward scissored hands the whole tim burton world at the time um and then there was another french movie i was really into called my life in pink Yes, uh, which Mavie is about, and Rose. Yes, yeah, Mavie and Rose about a gay kid who I think now would be considered trans, but basically it really goes into his fantasy world, and it's this very pink, beautiful world that this kid lives in, and all of those things I gave to the production designer with uh, Barbie Dreamhouse. <laughs> And I said, I want this movie to look like the Barbie dream house. And then I went to Toys R Us with her and we walked down the pink aisle and the blue aisle. And I said, look how gender conforming our crazy world is. And look at the toys that we're inundating kids with and teaching them about the binary. And it's so fucked up. And let's make the art department really... 
um, kind of fall in line with this idea that if you are gay and you go to this ex-gay camp that's going to get the gay out of you, we will use these gender tropes and we will pinkify the girls and blueify the boys and somehow that is going to make them straight. And let's make fun of it as much as possible. It's totally absurd. And let's make it as fake as possible, just like the Barbie dream house, nothing organic, <laughs> everything plastic, everything artificial, because... At that time, I just thought the whole binary gender construction was so ridiculous that I just wanted to make fun of it. And I was also a really big fan of Citizen Ruth, the Alexander Payne oh, yeah. movie that talks Lord's about Earth. abortion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just the way that he made fun of like the whole all, all sides of the abortion thing that was going on. And so I really wanted to make fun of Exodus International. And a lot of people at the time, like I got an F in Entertainment Weekly for my <laughs> review, uh, which I've literally never even seen an F in Entertainment Weekly, but I got one. And I the don't reviewer... Know, I don't know what got it. I, I'm, I'm really stunned. I don't even know who, who would have been the reviewer of this. Oh, I but do. Believe me, I do. Is 20 it years Owen ago. Gleiberman? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Owen, you are so wrong. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, yes. but I was kind of excited because I was like, ooh, an F. Like, that's not a C. That's an F. That's yeah, like, that's, that's I like knew... on my straight boy panties in a twist grade right there. That's what yeah. that is. So I was like, I knew I had struck a chord because I remember the first festival I played at. Well, we went to Sundance and we went to Toronto, but it was always like young people, like especially young girls that would come up to me afterwards and go nuts for the movie. And then I went to a film festival in Paris and also I got like the young people award. They had to vote for their favorite movie and they voted for it. So I was like... I know young people really see me and get it, and I'm in my 20s also, so, like, fuck these old guys that are reviewing my movie and giving me, like, Fs. <laughs> but I think if I gave a fuck, I would have quit directing. But because I was so energized by their disdain for me, it really helped propel me to keep going. Any gay film, it went through a certain level of scrutiny that I don't think a lot of other independent films had to go through. And one of the things that you had to go through also is you had a big public battle with the MPAA over But I'm a Cheerleader. And it was it was extremely, extremely unfair. Yeah, because when I made But I'm a Cheerleader, I was like, oh, this is a movie for kids. And it's very pop. It's my favorite movie was Clueless. So I was like, I want to do a gay movie in the vein of Clueless that's about a femme who's really empowered and who saves the day. And I wanted to look like the Barbie dream house, which was the literally the beginnings of my creativity as a child. And my whole reasons for being a filmmaker were thousands and thousands of hours I spent with my Barbie dream house playing Barbies. And I wanted to tell the story that femme lesbians can be empowered also and don't have to always be the ones who are saved. And that also you don't have to be a cheerleader and then transform into a diesel dyke on a motorcycle and that's how you become empowered. Like I wanted it to be like, she's a cheerleader at the beginning and at the end, she's still a cheerleader. Now she's just <laughs> cheering for gay love. <laughs> well, and you're subverting the binary again. This seems to be something you come back to. Yeah, so it was all really important to me because I felt... There was a lot of sexism in the gay community, which I wanted to talk about too. Between there like still butches and fems, there still is. I know, is. I know. It's not, it's but, not. It's not pretty. There's a lot of. There's a lot of ugliness. That I mean, not to 
put down the gay community because it's my community, but you know, there's a lot of sexism, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of there's a lot of big problems that we, transphobia. Yes, we have to um, like femme oppression, like by mm-hmm, butches, mm-hmm. Um, like sexist gender roles, like butches get to just sit down and uh, be served by their femme lesbian wives. Um, and I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Ohio and my parents were civil rights activists. That's how they met in the sixties. And my mom was a big feminist and my dad too. And we used to go to marches all the time. And so we were very like politically active family. And I grew up in Cleveland, which at the time was like the race riots of the seventies and, um, a lot of civil unrest. And then my parents were a, a real part of rebuilding, um, these industrial black cities that, um, like Detroit and Pittsburgh and Cleveland, we were all kind of Buffalo in the same place. And, um, so I just grew up with all those values. And when I was so excited to become a lesbian, my parents were thrilled. And I was like, wait, (laughs) all these butch women are like oppressing me? Like, fuck this. (laughs) So I thought, well, if I'm going to make a gay movie, the only way it's going to be good is if I really specifically tell it through my point of view, which is as like an empowered femme. And the thing, when I saw Go Fish, I was so excited that there was a lesbian movie that was in the Queer New Wave, because before that, it was all gay men. Yeah. Um, But it was very much like V.S., the main character, her big transformation is when she gets her butch haircut, and now all of a sudden (laughs) she's empowered. And I was really reacting to a lot of the lesbian content at the time, which was like, um, just... I just didn't see the femme heroes that I wanted to be. And so I just decided to make a sort of fairy tale for myself in the vein of like a clueless or um, I wanted to make people laugh. And I think a lot of the gay culture at the time too was you weren't really allowed to make fun of the community. Yeah. And I think because I was young. It was too serious. There was too much. I mean, but there was, there was so much like, like people don't understand. Younger people, I think don't understand because like when, when they would have something on the news, about gay rights or there was, I mean, there was really virtually no talk about gay marriage. I mean, gay marriage was like a fantasy. Like we didn't, none of us thought it would happen in our lifetimes. Um, But we're talking about like, you know, partners being able to go into hospitals to to say goodbye to their partners of like 15, 20, 30 years or not being like excluded by families. I mean, really hardcore, horrible, nasty stuff that if it happened to, I'm sure it probably does happen here or there today, but it's, you know, thankfully rare, but this was prevalent. And when it would go on the news, they would always have like, and here's the other point of view from someone who thinks that gay people should all die. I mean, literally that, that was their point of view. And they thought it was legitimate. It's like, oh yes. Like, you know, people in the suburbs watching was like, hmm, maybe gay people should be tattooed and put into camps or whatever. I mean, you know, maybe that's, that's a rational thing. So like, yeah, no, there was no humor. Like there was no way to like look at the gay community and be satirical in a pointed way because everybody was like, we always felt like we were all like, you know, surviving, you know, this was about survival. Yeah. And also when we, when I went to college, AIDS was ravishing the West Village. And I remember right after I graduated from college in 93, I was able to get a three bedroom apartment in the West Village, uh, which was very hard to get. But the reason is because so many people died in the West Village of AIDS that there became this huge turnover in real estate. Yeah. And the apartment that I moved into, 
had a silence equals death sticker on the front door. And I remember, you know, thinking about, wow, the Holocaust and the silence equals death. It's so important. Act Up was such a huge influence on me. And I thought, you know, the pink triangle was just like the Jews. Like we were, if you're quiet, you are going to be killed. So start making queer art, start sticking up for your community and, I also was like, I don't want to be a part of a community that can't laugh at itself. And because I was within the community, I knew that I could laugh at Exodus International and make fun of a lot of stuff, but also make a really sweet love story about two people who at the very end have a happily ever after tale and not one of them commit suicide. <laughs> Talk about setting the bar reasonably low. It's like, okay, please no one die. You know, and speaking, I was going to say, please don't let RuPaul die. So speaking of RuPaul, who is in this movie in, in not in drag as like, as a boy with a goatee playing Butch did not ex like, I, I mean, at the time RuPaul was not like RuPaul, like RuPaul's drag race. He wasn't a one man, you know, industry, but looking back on it, it's like, you know, he was, he was freaking hilarious. He was so great. I, remember seeing him on the Oscars and he was co-presenting with Milton Berle and that was the year that I cast him and he went out in his beautiful he had a big pop song at the time you gotta work it yeah, work supermodel. It girl. yeah and so he was invited to the Academy Awards to present and he looked amazing and went out and presented with Milton Berle and Milton Berle said something really mean about drag queens. And Rue... It was an improv. It was an improv. And Rue was Did so quick, <laughs> shredded him and said, oh, yo, you're in diapers yes. right now, said yeah. something really mean. And it was so clear that it was just like Rue couldn't stop himself because it was so fucked up what Milton Berle had said. Yeah. And uh, I remember just thinking, wow, this is a fierce queen. I must meet her. <laughs> and she actually submitted a headshot. And I saw the headshot and I was like, oh, that's so perfect because RuPaul Charles... Um, because, you know, the counselors at the gay rehab were all ex-gays. So they were all once gay and now they're butch. Right. And I thought that would be so funny to see RuPaul, who at that time no one had seen him as a man, um, be this counselor trying to teach people how to be straight. I just thought this is genius. But let me meet him because maybe like she's such a fierce queen that she's going to be really difficult and diva-ish. And I have 50 cents to make this movie in no time. So <laughs> let me see. So uh, Rue came into the office and was so lovely, is so smart, really sweet, very hardworking, always prepared, um, and was really excited about working with Eddie Cibrian, who he immediately said, oh, I know who that guy is. Oh, yeah, he's great. He'll be great. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he was excited. I'm sure. We were all we were excited to see him. Yeah. He's very yeah. easy on the eyes, Eddie Cibrian. As far as I'm concerned, there is not enough Kathy Moriarty in the world, much less in cinema. Like, whenever she pops up, 
in anything, I'm like, oh, I'm I'm happy. Like, you know, like the rest of the movie can utterly suck. Yours doesn't. But it's like Kathy Moriarty's in it. It's like amazing. So what was that like? Because she, uh, you could talk about somebody chewing up the scenery. She devours every single shot she's in. Well, she's so perfect because she looks kind of like a Barbie doll, but she's got that really <laughs> deep voice. So it was like everyone I wanted that kind of binary destroyed in the casting. So like, okay, here's a butch counselor, RuPaul playing a butch counselor. Okay, here's the woman who runs the rehab. She looks like a Barbie, but she's got the <laughs> voice of a man. And I remember the scene where she's like stomping on that like little plant thing that she's she's trying to stick this like fla wooden flower thing into the ground and she gets frustrated and she like stomps on it and kicks it. <laughs> Yeah, that was an improv. That was definitely an improv. Uh, <laughs> she was, she, yeah, because what happened was the production designer said, okay, so what is she doing at night where her son comes out? And I said, well, let's give her some business. How about watering the flowers? But because she's so not into nature, because nature is gay, because like if you have natural <laughs> instincts to do anything that's wrong. So how about her flowers are all plastic because she doesn't like natural things. She likes ordering things and fake things. So she'll have a bunch of plastic flowers and she can be watering them, which is basically just spraying them with a spray bottle to kind of clean them. And she, the designer was like, okay, I got it. And so I had Kathy like spraying these flowers. And then of course, one of them fell over. And so she just threw it because she was like, what the hell am I doing? This is totally insane. Um, I'm like, yeah, your character's nuts. Um, but no, she was lovely. And uh, we actually are doing a 20th re-release of But I'm a Cheerleader in 4K. Oh my God, so that's so great. great. Yeah, and Lionsgate decided to do it, which is so awesome. And we did a bunch of DVD extras um, for the new release. And one of the things we did was a cast reunion. And Kathy Moriarty said, you know what? I only saw But I'm a Cheerleader a year ago. And I said, really, Kathy? Like she, 19 she never years? Watched it. She never she watched never it? She never watched it. I mean, this is not a movie that kind of crawled onto like like D DVD release only. This was like in theaters. This made money. This was actually a minor hit. It played at the Angelica for a, like, a, I was in New York at the time. It played for a while. Yeah, but no, Kathy's not in our gay world, you know? She's like a L.A. woman who owns a pizza shop in Beverly Hills. And it was not in her orbit, but she said a year ago, a gay friend of hers said, hey, I want to come over and make you dinner. Um, let's watch But I'm a Cheerleader. And she said, oh, I've never seen But I'm a Cheerleader. And he was like, what? It's a classic. You're crazy. It's so good. You're so good in it. And she's like, I am? The movie's good? Oh, like, okay, first of all, I can't imagine Kathy Moriarty making pizza. But now I need to know where the Kathy Moriarty pizza is. You can do this now or you could like email me later. I don't care, but I like- No, I, I want everyone who's listening to this podcast to go there. It's called Mulberry Street Pizza, which Mulberry Street is the- In, in Little street, Italy. Little Italy in New York. And when Kathy Moriarty moved to LA, she opened up Mulberry Street Pizza in Beverly Hills. Look it up on Yelp. And oh, it's uh, I, right oh, there. I am absolutely going to get some Kathy Moriarty pizza. This is like literally something I'm going to put on my calendar for the next week. Somewhere right. I'm going to go break out and get some Kathy Moriarty pizza. So, this, okay. So, but I'm a cheerleader. 
was a hit. It made a few million at the box office, which is like a, a really good deal for an independent film at the time, especially a gay movie. Um, I remember there were other, a couple of others that like were moderate hits, like Incredibly True Story of Two Girls in Love and, you know, even Go Fish. But but I'm a cheerleader had a I, I, I don't know that I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it did very well. Um, and I'd imagine that you would have gotten a lot of offers from that. I got no offers from that. And it's funny <laughs> I was that you, up you for say that because... it was a hit because it really wasn't a hit. It was, I think we made $2 million, which the budget ended up being like 1.2 when all was said and done. So with the advertising and everything else, I mean, over 20 years, I think they've made a lot of money because of But it blew uh, up HBO on video. It blew, up, iTunes, it blew video. up on video. It blew yeah. up on DVD. Like every exactly. DVD place had it. Blockbuster. I mean, every Blockbuster had a copy of But I'm a Cheerleader. It was like their obligatory gay indie for that year that they would get, like, you know, because they would, you know, Blockbuster would like get one or two and like say, okay, and it's done, you know, whatever. Like here's our LGBT moment over here. There it is. But but I'm a cheerleader was, you know, everywhere. I mean, people saw it all over the place. So like regardless of like, I mean, it made two million at the domestic box office, but it made a ton of money on, you know, on uh, DVD. And certainly Lionsgate wouldn't be doing a 20th anniversary release if it weren't <laughs> a big seller on home video. Yeah, I do think it did really well. Um, and actually it was on the Criterion channel and yes. a lot of great things have happened over 20 years. But I'm just saying at the time, I was, if I had been a different person, I would have quit directing because the reviews were so bad. Look at Variety. Open up a pizza place. Uh, Variety, I got an F. Entertainment Weekly, I got an F. Like, I mean, people hated the movie. Yeah, and, and most reviewers are older men and, you know, they didn't get it or they were offended. Older white men. Older white men. Owen Gleiberman, I think, is straight, but the guy at Variety was gay and he was just offended. So... Uh, I don't know if it did well, but I was very lucky because I got an agent at Sundance and it happened to be Clea and Natasha's agent and which was my only offer. And I said to my agency, look, I just want to make money. I don't want to wait tables after Sundance. Like, can you get me some kind of paid job? And they said, well, you know, don't you want to just make indie movies? And I said, no, I want to make a living as a director. I'm a lesbian. Like, lesbians are poor. Like, we need <laughs> health insurance. Um, I said, I'll do commercials. I'll do TV. I'll do anything. And they said, okay, well, cool. Um, there's this one show. Um, it's very late that it got picked up. It's on this crappy network, CW. Um, and it's called Popular. And why don't you go in and meet with the creator because they, a lot of people are already booked. And so there's not a lot of like, you're not going to be competing against big directors because you don't really have a resume. And I was like, okay, great. So I drive my car. It's my first interview with a professional person who's going to like pay me money to direct. And the person who wrote, and he's very new to TV, he's never done TV before, is Ryan Murphy. Yes. So. Little, little show called Popular. Which uh, ended up running for quite a while. Yeah, it was two years. Um, and I just had a great interview. Like, I really liked Ryan. He really liked me. We were both like, we're young. We've never done TV. We're super gay. We love it. We're, like, into the same stuff. And But I'm a cheerleader. Hadn't been released yet. So he hadn't seen that. He had only seen my short, Sleeping Beauties, with Clea. And, uh, yeah, so I worked on Popular for two years with Ryan. And to his credit, I can guarantee you 
he told the CW, hey, I'm hiring this girl. She's never directed TV before. And they went, oh, hell no, you can't hire her. And he probably said, go fuck yourself. And he wasn't even successful. He was new. But he's just a singular person who doesn't give a fuck. So There are, there are quite a few people, if we're going to talk about Ryan Murphy for a moment, there are quite a few people who got their first breaks in directing television by Ryan Murphy. I know at least a, a couple of people who had no TV experience and uh, Ryan Murphy did exactly what you're describing. And he's he's kind of known for nurturing new talent, especially for LGBT people and people of color and minorities to give them chances directing television. But I mean, I know you were involved in the DGA and I think still are involved in the DGA, uh, like an outreach. Tell the listeners, because I know these statistics, they're horrifying. Tell the listeners like back, I would say 20 years ago, what percentage of television was directed by white men? 99% of television was directed by white men. It's not even hyperbole. It was insane. And it wasn't until a few years later, and you were one of the voices that kind of brought that to the fore, that television realized um, they needed to be more diverse, especially behind the camera. Yeah. I think, you know, TV is a great job because it's a two-week job, a three-week job, because most directors, you just direct one episode. And then if they like you, they'll hire you to direct more episodes. But um, it's a great job because it's in the union, it's very well paid, um, it's a very short amount of time so that you can still make your weird indie movies and make no money. Um, so it was a good balancing act for me. But, you know, a lot of uh, very uh, mediocre people wanted to do it. And it's like any job that's well paid and has great benefits um, those never have enough women in them or people of color. So I, I got in because of Ryan Murphy and I remember thinking, God, there's no one else like me. And then 10 years later when I was working, I was like, where are all the 20 somethings behind me? And I really didn't see any women coming up behind me. And it wasn't literally until like me too, where the studios were scared of getting, you know, sued that all of a sudden they started opening the doors to people who didn't have as much experience. And thank God, because how can you get experience unless you're given your first shot? Right. So, and and I honestly think the shadowing programs and all of that made it worse. Like I never shadowed on, in TV. And the truth is if you've directed indie movies, you've worked on a very tight schedule. And TV is actually easier than indie movies because you have a great crew that's a union yeah. crew that can perform at a very high level. And you have more time than you did on your indie movie. So, but, you, but you're still shooting a crazy amount of pages in television. It's not oh, like yeah. a feature. No, I mean, no, it's like an indie doing... feature, but it's like, but you're still talking about like five, six, eight. seven, eight pages. Yeah, I yeah, mean, eight it's, pages it's a, lot. a day. It is a, a lot, but you know what? If you've done an indie movie and you've worked on the crew and you have some experience doing other stuff in the film industry, you can do it. And it took a movement to get the studios to finally open up the gate a little bit more. And it's still terrible. I mean, it's not great, but it's definitely a lot better than when I started. And thank God for people like Ryan Murphy, who just didn't give a fuck and promoted people and hired people and told the studios to fuck off. Do you want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world 
whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories, while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is, it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. So there's a phrase that film nerds use a lot called the journeyman director. And looking at your body of work, it really seems to apply. Now, the journeyman director is defined as somebody who kind of comes in and tells the story really well, but doesn't really, like, throw some kind of ego signature on it. It's like, you know, you look at Sidney Lumet is probably the king of the American journeyman directors of the 70s. And I know they've called John Ford a journeyman director, even though he's a little more identifiable just through genre and stuff. But your work has spanned every genre and and every possible, I mean, you know, you've done features, you've done television. Like, what do you think about directing as a philosophy of like kind of what you put yourself into and kind of how much you, you serve the story? I mean, I don't think of myself as a big ego. I mean, I think I'm a confident, empowered woman who's happy to execute uh, and make decisions. And I think I'm very good at making decisions in a fast, efficient way. But I'm not all about Jamie Babbitt's ego and putting my stamp on things. I mean, I came from the theater. So um, my first directing classes were all theater directing classes. And I remember my first directing teacher, this guy, Marcus Stern, who taught at Circle Rep, and he came from Yale, uh, the theater directing school there. The whole philosophy was he would give to the 20 directors in the class the same scene, and we would all block it and do our thing with it. And it was so interesting to see 20 different directors do things that were totally different. And of course, the way that you block the scene, the way you shoot the scene, the way you see it in your head is going to be totally different from someone else. And that's just the facts of directing. But my feeling is you read the words, you think about what the writer's intent was, and you execute. And that's always what I did. So it also kind of directing... I, I always loved Ang Lee as a director because he also started in indie movies around the same time as me um, with his gay Taiwanese movie. Uh, Wedding that, Banquet. Wedding Banquet, such a great movie. And so funny, so charming, so filled with love. And then he went on to do another one of my favorite movies, which was like a female fight, uh, amazing choreography um, uh, it, I think it was, was it also in Taiwanese? I think he's from Taiwan. You're talking about Crouching um, Tiger? Yeah, Crouching Tiger. Ti- was Crouching that Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's, it's, it, uh, it's in a foreign language. I don't know okay. which language it is. I, I think, okay. it, it, I want to say it's in Mandarin or Cantonese, but I don't want to be a complete idiot. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I know but anyway, all I know is Crouching <laughs> Tiger was 
blew my mind because it's also kind of a fairy tale mm-hmm. uh, with some really amazing um, visuals in it. And, uh, and that was sort of the first time I had seen like people on wires flying through forests. Like I was just like blown away by that movie. But then he also did The Ice Storm, which was like a suburban, sad portrait of marriages in Such the 70s. Yeah. Oh my God. If you, like everyone, I, I know I always say this, I'm going to be made fun of, but if you haven't seen... Uh, Crouching Tiger. If you haven't seen Crouching Tiger, see Crouching Tiger. If you haven't seen The Ice Storm, see The Ice Storm. If you haven't seen um, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is my favorite of his stuff, which was done actually before The Wedding Banquet, please see that. I don't think a lot of people have seen that either. That's a great movie, too. He's a fantastic director. Yeah, but I would say he's a journeyman just as far as he does so many different genres. And he's always exploring. And I'm a very restless person that is, I really have wanderlust. And not only do I like to travel the world and see things and meet people, um, but I also love to do that in my work. So I'm like, ooh, cool. Let's do like a basic instinct movie. Ooh, let's do a comedy. Ooh, let's do a drama. Like I just get restless. And um, this year I actually shot a Super Bowl commercial which was oh, wow. a big foray into commercial directing. And that was super fun too. So I I really like to dance around. I get bored. Like, I don't want to just make indie movies. I don't want to just make studio movies. I don't want to just do TV. I don't want to just do commercials. I like going from thing to thing um, because I like storytelling and all the different ways. I love making short films. I'd love to make another short film. I'd love to make a documentary. So I just have wanderlust of directing. And it's funny because like when you... I, I think when film nerds like myself and, and cinephiles read about directors and like we read about like this director or that director, it's very sexy to kind of like love like you were talking about David Fincher before. David Fincher is a director who definitely has a visual and kind of tonal stamp on almost everything he does. And even though he's done different genres, uh, it's a very pretty specific, dark, cold uh, clinical, but extremely powerful. He's one of my favorites. But it's it's a lot less, I guess, sexy to kind of like talk about directing as a craft, as something that you approach based on whatever it is you're doing. And I find those directors to be absolutely fascinating and quite undersung. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like I said, I do feel like no matter what I direct, I'm always going to see it in my own way, just because it's just the nature of the beast. But Um, but like Ang Lee, I would hope that I can just keep exploring and I don't want to get pigeonholed. And I mean, I, well, nobody can pigeonhole you. I mean, look look at your resume. No, you can't. I mean, it's like all that you can say about like the, the, like when I was doing my research, uh, it's just great work. It's just great work across the board. But I, I want to talk about some of these TV shows because when you direct TV, and I think that we should talk about this a little bit, it's very different than directing a movie because you're very, very much there to serve the vision of the showrunner and the writers in the writer's room, really, who are crafting an entire like long-form story and you're just one part of it, that you have to like play with it. You have to be the cog that fits within the gears. Yes, that's true. Although I would say the person who directs the pilot is really setting the visual tone mm-hmm. uh, for the entire show. So like Leslie Linka Gladder, she directed the pilot for Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. And she had just come from directing a million West Wing episodes where they were doing all the Steadicam work that Tommy Schlamy did on the, the pilot of the West Wing. Yeah. And really elaborate, like, 360 moves. And so when she directed the pilot for Gilmore Girls, she said, oh, I want to do this in a lot of oneers with the Steadicam, the way she was doing the West Wing. 
And because she really loved it and thought it was such a fun kind of dance like way to do choreography. And um, Amy loved it. And anyway, they ended up doing it for the pilot. And then it became the mantra for six years on Gilmore. And I did 18 (laughs) episodes where I was really learning how to dance with the Steadicam and how to block oneers, really elaborate oneers. And then we just kept doing it. And Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know, which is nominated for Emmys every year, I got to direct on that. And it's just an extension, honestly, of the language, the cinema language that was started by Leslie Linka Gladder in the pilot of Gilmore Girls. So it's just interesting to see how artists evolve. Amy's obviously taken it times a thousand. Um, but I mean, I think like in any movement, artistic movement, you see there's people who came before and there was influences and there was things going on at the time. And sometimes it's very mundane things like, oh, we use a Steadicam all the time because we needed to do it in one shot because Aaron Sorkin gave us a script 10 minutes ago and we don't have time to do a million shots, so we're just going to do it in one. I mean, that honestly may be why they did that for it does, West it Wing. It does save time, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. a lot. There, I mean, when you're talking about Aaron Sorkin's lines, I mean, there, there are quite a lot of them. There are a lot of Aaron Sorkin lines. Yeah, you well, by the, the way, that, do you know how many lines Amy Sherman Palladino has? That's a lot of words, oh, too. And they're talking yeah. so fast. God, this is a good show. And you talked about L- Leslie Linka Gladder. It's like she went on to do, and I think she did the pilot for Homeland, or she just show ran Homeland. Yeah. She, I uh, think she shot the pilot. She definitely did the pilot for Pretty Little Liars. Um, and it's such and... a different style, though. This is such a different style. It's like another like, journeyman director is like where we're talking about. Um, have you have you directed pilots? I have. So I just had one of the biggest pleasures of my life. I got to direct the pilot uh, for A League of Their Own, the new Amazon oh. series. Oh. So it's a one hour um, re-envisioning. Every of... gay. Every gay listening to this is like, what? Yeah, I want to tune in now. It's so incredible. It's so it's an hour show. It's very queer. We did a deep dive on all the real queer women who are a part of the league. We interviewed all of them. They were on set. Uh, one of them told us that 70% of the women's baseball league, professional women's baseball league, were lesbians. They were all hooking up. I was so interested in the real stories of the 70% of the league that were lesbians uh, which is what one of the players told us. All wow. the hookups, all the girlfriends, all the fans, all the girls on the other team. Oh, my God. Um, and then I, there were also... I need also, to see this right now. I need were, this in my veins right yeah, now. Yeah, it was so fun. So And it was Abby Jacobson stars in it. She also wrote it with Will Graham, who did Mozart in the Jungle. So two queerdos who wrote it. I got to direct the pilot, and it takes place in the 40s very gay, and also talked a lot about the African-American players, the women who were kicking ass at the time. You know, they integrated with Jackie Robinson in the male league, but they never integrated the women's league. And so we talk a lot about the black players and their characters in the show too, and the Negro league and uh, the friction between the two leagues. And anyway, it's a very modern look at what really went down in the 40s. And I'm so excited uh, that I got to be a part of it. And it's coming to Amazon soon. I cannot wait. So I'm going to throw some titles in front of you, and I just want to hear about them. Gilmore Girls. 
tell me what that experience was like. It was brilliant to work on Gilmore Girls because I got to collaborate with Amy Sherman Palladino, who is an incredible writer, incredible force of nature, a lot like Ryan Murphy and her, I don't give a fuck about what anyone is trying to tell me. I'm going to do my own thing. And she's such an original. She's such an artist. Um, what a force of nature. So just being in her path was an incredible thing. And that was, I think, literally my second interview after Ryan Murphy, I interviewed with Amy Sherman Palladino. Wow. So I got real lucky in the Whatever 90s. luck you have, I want you to like shine some of that on me and for that matter, the election. Yeah, she's, uh, she's amazing. So that was the best part of that. Um, as far as the actors go, uh, that was tough. It was 18 episodes, so we went through a lot together. But I had a veteran actress, Lauren Graham, who could do that fast dialogue, was, could memorize things in a second. Um, and then I had Alexis Bledel. This was her first role. She wasn't really that interested in being an actress at the time. I think she really is, likes it now. But at the time, she was very undecided because she was going to NYU and she had to pull out of NYU to do Gilmore Girls. Oh, wow. You know, it's hard to be a kid and be on this very fast-paced show. She had to memorize, I think, 15 pages of dialogue a day. And we weren't allowed to do another shot until we got it word perfect. So the actors had to get the and and the the and the but. And they had to speak really, really fast. And if they got it wrong, we had to start all over again. So it was it was a very tough shoot, but brilliant writing, brilliant acting. Um, and we were all kids and we figured it out together. So it was a lot of fun. Malcolm in the Middle. You know, I did not enjoy working on that show. Um, to be oh. totally honest, if you notice in the show, everyone's yelling at each other. <laughs> And let's be honest, the person who wrote that show yells a lot. And oh. it was just a very unpleasant environment, to be honest. Very sexist. Um, I felt not supported as a female filmmaker. Um, they had kind of burned through women directors, held us to these weird standards that none of the men were held to. Um, I absolutely adored the producer-director, this guy, Todd Holland, a gay man who was wonderful, yes. talented. He has a long, long history in, uh, of movies and stuff. Yeah, and really into um, Black Lives Matter and even at the time. Mm -hmm. like He was very ahead of his time, very out, black husband, uh, loved him. And he's like the Steven Spielberg of TV directing. He's so talented. So that was an absolute joy to work with him. He's done a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, he was an early mentor to me. I don't know if he knows that, but he was an early mentor. So I I adored working with him. I did not enjoy the creator of that show. What about Nip Tuck? Nip Tuck was super fun. Those actors were amazing. Christian, who was Ryan's kind of doppelganger on the show. Straight doppelganger, plastic surgeon. Uh, what a fantastic actor he is. And, you know, he's actually JFK Jr. in Australia. His dad was prime minister. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, and what a beautiful man, Julian McMahon, uh, inside and out. Talented actor, hardworking, had no issues with nudity, which he had to do a lot of nudity on that show. Um, and it was just a blast. Like, it was back to Ryan's insanity of, like, crazy plastic surgery stories. I just, I love Ryan's mind. He's just wildly innovative, totally inappropriate, very queer. Like they were straight friends, but they had such queer energy together. 
and uh, it was just a lot of fun to work on. I'm, I'm actually dying for you to do an American Horror Story episode. I think that would be so much fun. I would love to. Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> I would just love to work with Sarah Paulson. She's so talented, and she's really in that um, staple Ryan Murphy actor right now. Dirty Sexy Money. Dirty Sexy Money was so fun because Donald Sutherland is one of the most talented actors I've ever looked at on the monitor. I mean, that guy can play three different intentions at the same time. You see in his eyes so much depth. It was crazy. Like, talk about one of those old timers that you work with and you're just blown away. And I've worked with a lot of old timers where I'm like, um, they don't have it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but not Donald Sutherland. And also, what a hard worker. He would always come hours before the call time. I'd be like, Donald's not, he's like in a scene like five hours from now. Why is he here? And the ABs would be like, we told him, but he wanted to come. And we oh, would also do these big family scenes and all the other actors, we would let them leave because like we were just turning around on, you know, a day player. And the only actor that would stay is Donald Sutherland. And he'd be in his winter jacket. He wore curlers in his hair because he had like this beautiful mane of silver hair. Um, and he always wore Crocs. He's Canadian. So we forgive him for the Crocs. And he just, he would never leave. He was like, nope, there's an actor that's acting. He looked at me three times in the scene. I'm going to be there for him. Oh, that is so, I, I've always loved him and your story has made me love him more. He's, he's incredible. He's a thoroughbred. So that was a real pleasure. And obviously Peter Krause and so many other actors. Um, it was a great cast. It was a great cast. Show. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Speaking of great cast, the United States of Tara. I mean, Tony Collette, another thoroughbred. Holy shit! That performance, that show. I don't know. I don't even know how you keep up that kind of energy for the run of a show. So, those of you who don't know the United States of Tara, it was a Showtime show. Uh, if you like in around 2010 and she played a woman with multiple personalities and this is Tony Collette who can play anything and she does she plays anything she plays how many different personalities does she have I forget how many it was like six or seven at least yeah. and they were all so distinct I would imagine it's just like you know red meat just like being able to like direct an episode of this show it was incredible and she was just such a funny uh, amazing woman, very lighthearted, could easily be cracking jokes in a really thick Australian accent. I would say action, and she would instantly have an American accent and be one of her personalities in a crying scene. Like, she's not method in the way that she had to be in a dour mood preparing in between setups. Like, she's, it rolls off her back. She makes it look so easy. But what she was doing was just so incredible. And that was also the DP of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, David Mullen, who is one of the most delightful DPs that I will ever work with. And I hope to work with him again and again. Uh, a true genius. But I got to work with him on Stuck, my short film. I got to work with him on United States of Terra. I got to work with him on Smash which was so I fun. want to talk about Smash because one of the other podcast episodes, we interviewed Michael Mayer, Christian Borland, and Jonathan Groff. Jonathan Groff wasn't on Smash, but I got some, I got some great dish about the pilot of Smash and, and, and uh, anybody who doesn't know, like who's a Smash fan, because I watched every episode. Um, there was a lot of drama on this show. There was a lot of network drama. There was a lot of internal drama. Some of it got out to the press and it just sounded like 
a, a crazy roller coaster to be on this show. It lasted two seasons, but it's a total lot of fun to watch. Oh, God, it was so fun. And they had so many showrunners, too. They kept firing the showrunner and then got a new showrunner. <laughs> yes, exactly. You were in season two? No, I was right after the pilot. So, oh, so you were you were under Teresa Rebecca. I was under the original writer who is a playwright who's brilliant. And Michael had just directed the pilot and then he was doing episode two and I was prepping for episode three. And I remember saying to Michael, hey, can I talk to you about what's going on? Because this is a little nuts. And he said, yeah, sure. I'm so busy. I'm directing this Broadway show. But why don't you come to one of my rehearsals and I'll like, you know, get away for a second. And I went to his Broadway rehearsal, which when you're shooting Smash was so informative because I was like sucking it all in. Like, oh, this is great because right. I'm learning about Broadway. And we sat down. He was so lovely, Michael Mayer, so generous, a director to director. He's a sweetheart. And just kind of said to me, look, you know, it's totally nuts. Do this, do that. You can help yourself this way. Watch out for this person. And then I remember the producers said to me, hey, uh, you know, we, we want to give you a director shadow, someone who we're thinking about directing, but he's never done TV before. And I said, oh, great. You know, who is it? And um, they said, oh, he directed uh, the Book of Mormon. And I was oh. like, Casey Nicolau is going to be my directing intern. That was so wow. fun. So he was interning with me the whole time, and uh, we also had a blast together. So I really felt like I was in the hands of these Broadway emperors, and Christian Borlay, what a talent. Michael, just being the director right after him, I felt like, wow, I really need to do a great job. And it was one of the first times I walked on set, and I truly had, like, butterflies in my stomach just because I loved the pilot so much. It's so good. And it's, I was so excited. <laughs> I was so excited. I was so excited. So you also directed three episodes of another LGBT uh, landmark series looking with Jonathan Groff, who was on the podcast before. Um, talk about because that's a very different style than almost everything that you've done. Like, talk about what that was like. It was so fun because Andrew Hay was directing it, and I loved his movies. Um, he did this movie called The Weekend. 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 Everyone see it. Yeah. yeah. Everyone see Weekend. If you haven't seen another, I'm going to just say this again. Like, if you haven't seen Weekend, drop everything and go see Weekend. What a what a beautiful gay story. Uh, it's it's so amazing. So intimate, it's a... so beautiful um, and I was just really intrigued by the way he approaches cinematography, which basically is handheld, very intimate. Um, you know, Gilmore Girls, I had been doing oneers with the Steadicam, but this was oneers handheld in this very intimate style, whereas Gilmore Girls was very performative and Smash was very performative. This was very, very intimate. And it was, we got to go to San Francisco. Most of the cast was queer. Um, we all hung out together. It was like being in summer camp in San Francisco. Um, Reed Moreno was the DP who is an incredible director and she was an amazing cinematographer. Um, so I was very lucky to collaborate with her. And then number one on the call sheet was Jonathan Groff, one of the best actors of all time, who's just a love bug and insanely talented. Um, and we got to do sexy stories. We got to do sex. We got to do, um, I had a scene where two guys are having anal sex. One guy pulls out, comes on his boyfriend and some jizz gets into his boyfriend's eye. And then the boyfriend uh. freaks out and wonders, can I get HIV through an eyeball? 
through an eyeball. And it was right at the time that everyone was starting to take prep. So we were talking about prep. Like it was just, it was such a great show because we were just able to talk about a lot of the queer stuff that was going on at the time. And also, frankly, the tech industry was taking over San Francisco, all the rich tech people. And there was a lot of animosity from the queer community to the tech community because they were getting blown out of their neighborhoods, especially the lesbians. And so we got to talk about that too. And Jonathan Groff played one of these rich tech gay guys who was blowing out a generation of queer people. Russell Tovey was the love, the, interest. The, the love interest dude who was like kind of a tech bro, but gay, kind of accidentally gay, but sort of gay. And but I don't even remember if he was closeted or not, but it was, yeah. Yeah, he was, and in the first season, he was like a skinny cutie pie. And then in the second season, he totally beefed out. And he, <laughs> he had started dating a weightlifter. And so he had gotten really into weightlifting. So he was almost unrecognizable the second season. Um, he knew his audience. He wanted to bump his Q rating. Like, oh, yeah. uh, God bless Russell Tovey. Yeah. Listen, he looks great. He not... looks great. I thought he looked great both years. Um, a very good looking guy. And, uh, oh, God, there were so many smoke shows on that show. I mean, holy shit. What's a, what's a smoke show? A smoke show is a very, very hot gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> I was like every cast member on that show was gorgeous. Like OT african-american guy that guy is a total yeah. smoke show yeah um and then murray, murray bartlett term. murray bartlett that guy is a smoke show I'm, I'm gonna use Come this on. i i think you've told taught me like at least two terms that i'm just gonna use from i forget what the other one was i'm gonna have to play it back but smoke i'm writing down smoke show <laughs> like, this is I'm I'm gonna bring this into co common parlance there if it's not it, unless I'm missing it. it maybe it is already beautiful gay men so many beautiful gay men I do want to hit a couple more because like these you have so many credits um, it's always sunny it's always sunny it was so much fun because I got to do an episode that actually shot in Philadelphia which. They never shoot in Philadelphia. It's always in downtown Los Angeles. Oh, wow. My episode, it was a musical episode, so I got to use all my Smash experience. Oh, you did that musical Oh, my God. I didn't know that one was yours. Yeah, it was, uh, well, it was the crack, or the the guy who's on PCP. That yeah. one, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You've made television history, Jamie Babbitt. It was Babbitt. so fun. And I also got, I, I got to, they block shoot, so I did, I think, three episodes in a row. And I got to do the PCP musical in Philadelphia, which I had never been to Philadelphia. So it's like going to this awesome city with the Beatles, basically, of Philadelphia, because those guys are so famous in Philadelphia. So that was really fun. And shooting a musical in the streets of Philly in like every beautiful location was incredible. And then I also got to shoot the coming out episode where the creator of the show um, he was raised by two lesbians. His brother is gay, who also works on the crew. He's still a photographer. And he basically transitioned his character to uh, coming out. And so I got to do the coming out episode. It was a lovely episode. So that could have gone wrong in about 13 different ways. And I watched that. I was like, I watched that kind of through my fingers. And I'm like, oh, no, is this going to be fucked up and stupid? It's like, no, it was actually absolutely fantastic yeah because the thing is mac had been gay the whole time he had always put the clues in there but he was yeah. he was out he, he wasn't out to his friends and he wasn't really out to himself 
And so it was basically the coming out episode where you, the the friends find an exercise bike that fucks him when he rides it. Remember that? <laughs> it was called the Ass Pounder 3000. And the friends are like, hey, we really think you're gay. And like, what is your fucking problem? And he was like, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. And they were like, well, what's the, up with this exercise bike? And it would, had a giant dildo on it. And when he would ride it, it would like fuck him. And he's like, oh, no, it's just really motivating. It's just like poking me to stand <laughs> up. They're like, uh, I don't think so. But I will say that the great thing about Mac's character is that, you know, that show is so wrong, it's right. Um, but, but you know, Rob, the creator of Always Sunny, grew up in a queer family. His moms are lesbians, yeah. his brother's gay. Like, it was important to him to do it right. And also in the sunny way, which is, of course, it's going to be so wrong, it's right. But they went to Gay Pride. They went on the float. Like, there were bomb threats that year at Gay Pride in L.A., and they still went on the float. Like, he is a real advocate for the community, and I applaud him. What about Girls? Girls was so fun. I was such a fan of the show. And at the time, I really hadn't cracked into HBO. And it's all I wanted was to direct all those shows on HBO. And luckily, Lena was a fan of But I'm a Cheerleader. And so there you go. she hired me because of that. And She didn't give it an F. See? See? She was one of those youngsters who was like, this is fucking awesome. Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, working with Mike Judge, who is the most deadpan, funniest, ahead of his time dude. I mean, he created Daria. He created... Uh, Beavis and Butthead. I mean, come on, that guy's amazing. I uh, was never really a fan of Beavis and Butthead. But I remember when I interviewed with Mike, I was like, wait, he kind of sounds like Beavis and Butthead. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, Mike Judge is the voice of Beavis and Butthead, which was very shocking to me. Um, but once I got to know him, I realized he was actually making fun of those guys. He's right. not one of those guys. He's actually like a cool nerd who is like, fuck those guys. So then it made me realize, oh, maybe I should have watched Beavis and Butthead. But I don't know. It was, like, too, like, bro for me. Um, but I did like Daria. And Silicon Valley, working with Zach Woods and Kumail, um, Thomas Middleditch. I mean, all those guys are, like, head of the curve comedians. And amazing improvs, great writing. Uh, what a dream team. So that was fun. It was a lot of boy, a lot of boy stuff, though. <laughs> Uh, and let's talk about Mrs. Maisel because we brought it up before, but that is a stunning show. And you were like, yeah, every year it's up for Emmys. It's like, yeah, there's a reason every year it's up for Emmys because it's amazing. It's a great show. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was fun because I hadn't worked with Amy since Bunheads where we had like 50 cents to make that show. <laughs> and I just have known Amy for so many years. I mean, I've known Amy for 20 years. So getting to work with her again for the first time with a budget for the first time with the support of a network behind us, for the first time with just these amazing collaborators, the production designer, the costume designer, they're all like the top people in New York. So it was such a cool tribute to Amy that 20 years later, I get to step into her palace and direct this incredible ensemble of actors with every tool I could want. And the great thing about a really high budget show, and when I say high budget, they have so much money on that show. Um, but the great thing about a high budget show is that you dream in your mind of what it will look like when you read the words and you can actually execute it. So there was like a scene in my script where it said, 
uh, Midge, the lead character, she's going on a comedy tour and she's going through Pennsylvania and she stops at a, a phone booth and she makes a phone call. And I said, well, if she's in Pennsylvania, it might be Amish country. So it'd be really fun to have an Amish market behind her and maybe someone's, uh, you know, in their Amish outfit and they're riding one of their horse and buggies by. And, you know, they're like, okay, cool, great. Write it down. Yes. Horse trainer, horse, Amish. <laughs> market like and then you it can, happens yeah and then it happened and it's literally just <laughs> happening in the background of a phone call i mean i've never had the dreams in my mind be able to be realized in such an effortless way so a, it's a real tribute to amy's talent and to the world that they've caught up to how genius she is like give her support she yeah. fucking deserves it i love it when artists have money to actually realize their vision without compromising too much it's 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 a lovely moment when that happens it doesn't it happen is. too often it doesn't. So I am so thankful that Amy has kept on because finally she doesn't have some crappy network that's always telling her no. Not that she listened anyway, but you know. <laughs> and you did the new Aquafina show. Aquafina is Nora from Queens. Love Nora. Um, her name's Nora. And she is a multi hyphenate. She is an incredible actress. She is also a rapper. And. Most surprisingly, she is a concert trumpeter. No. Yes, she went to Stuyvesant High School in New York, and she her main studies were of the trumpet. That's she actually, amazing. She has a trumpet tattoo on her arm. She doesn't do that in the show, does she? She does not. It's so sacred to her. She hasn't brought it into the comedy of Comedy Central, but she cares a lot about the trumpet. She has a tattoo. She plays beautifully, um, and she's an incredible rapper. So she yeah. is. My badge is hilarious. Like if you oh. haven't if you haven't seen the YouTube for my vag, that's it's that's amazing. That video is amazing. I I don't know how many times I watched that. It's a lot. Yeah. Did you get Did you get to uh, work with Bo and Yang at all? Because as far as I'm concerned, there's not enough Bo and Yang in anything. He's I like, love he, Bo and Yang so, so much. I have love such a crush him. on him. I, I to have say. a crush on Bo and Yang too. So I know that I will work with him at some point, hopefully very soon. Um, but I did not get to work with him on Aquafina, but I am a number one fan of his. I adore him. And I just want to end with Russian Doll, which really took my breath away when I watched it. So you directed three episodes of that. I don't know which three they are, um, but that show is is technically and narratively amazing. Yeah, it was so fun. Uh, Leslie Headland is a brilliant writer. Natasha also, it was her idea, and she'd had it for years um, and it was sort of a metaphor for her recovery journey because as right. addicts out there know, you wake up every day, you get fucked up and you try to kill yourself with drugs and alcohol. And it's just this cycle that you get stuck in. And how do you get out of this cycle of abuse through uh, meeting other people who have your same problem? Right. And using the community to lift each other up and get out of it. And that's basically what the show is about. And I started directing once Natasha is in the elevator and she meets another person who's dying all the time as well. It's a gasp and moment when that happens. You're like, wait, what? Oh, my God. Like, you didn't know the show was going in this direction. Like, there's someone else. Yeah. And that was the first scene I directed of my block of episodes. So wow. I really got to uh, explore how she got out of this cycle of abuse and of self-abuse, basically. Basically, um, it was so much fun. It was like weird science fiction, but also very funny. 
Very New York, too. Very New York. We shot within like a five block radius in the East Village, which is very close to my heart. And I've lived there a lot of years and hung out in that part of town. And it was a lot of fun to make. It was bitter, bitter cold. And it was in the middle of winter. Mm. But, um, and we were shooting at three in the morning with 50 cents. But amazing crew, amazing cast. The DP ended up winning an Emmy. Natasha. Deservedly. That, the show was visually stunning. Yeah, it was. And what he did for very little money is incredible. So um, I met a lot of great people on that show. And what a treat 20 years after working with Natasha on But I'm a Cheerleader that I got to climb inside of her creativity, her yeah. story. She climbed inside my story for But I'm a Cheerleader because that character was very much me. I got to climb inside her creativity on Russian Doll. So it was a real artistic, joyful moment to kind of come full circle on that artistic relationship. Had you been in touch with her in between the 20 years? Where, because But I'm a Cheerleader is one of the movies that kind of brought Natasha Lyonne to the forefront, that and the slums of Beverly Hills. Those were the two movies that like really like kind of cemented her as an indie kind of icon for a while. And then, and then she had her own issues, like, you know, some of which are substance related, but there were other issues. Like, I think she had a heart thing that was just congenital. It was like, there were just medical issues she had to deal with. Um, I mean, what was that like throughout that time and then coming back to her? I really thought, so when I made But I'm a Cheerleader with her, obviously artistically, I was so in love with her. She's so talented. Um, and then she had so many medical issues and uh, addiction issues for about 10 years, uh, really right after Cheerleader. And so she kind of fell off the map. And by map, I mean, she really was insulating herself from all of her friends and was yeah. living a very fringe life with a lot of addicts. And uh, so, no, I lost touch with her completely. And I actually thought probably the next time I heard her name would, that she would have been passed away um, just because I know the cycle of addiction and how awful it can be. And yeah. my mom ran a drug rehab center. So I knew how, you know, it really is a life or death situation. Um, so to roll film on her again as a sober person and to be able to tell such a unique, brilliant, funny, sci-fi fucking cool story from someone who's come out of that addictive cycle for 10 years. It was unbelievable. I was filled with so much joy and, you know, there's so much grace in the world at times. I mean, the world can be so painful. And then there's these moments of grace where you're like, I'm looking at Natasha on a screen. I never thought she would come back from this. And she did. And what a fighter, what a brilliant woman, what an incredible artist. And she lived to tell the tale and what an amazing tale she tells. I'm going to ask two more questions. One is, how are you holding up with the pandemic and all this stuff? Like just as an artist or just as a, as a person? You know, the pandemic has been a very strange time for me because I finished League of Their Own, which was one of the highlights of my career, right before the pandemic. So we wrapped shooting like March 1st. Oh, my God. Um, so I was editing and putting the show together during the pandemic. So I still was very artistically engaged in post-production and loving the footage and loving the final show. And the show got picked up. So that was a really great thing that happened during the pandemic. Um, I've been hiding out in my house with my kids as a very busy director for the last 20 years. I have not spent this much time with my family um, and it's been wonderful. So we've all been safe. I've been very, very conservative. I've like basically not left the house in six months um, and it's been wonderful. So for someone who's 
really been running on the habit trail of directing uh, city to city, show to show, project to project, it's been really nice to do nothing and really just connect with the people around me. And I also got into a new relationship like a month before the pandemic. I'm like, congratulations. I know. So it's kind of funny to go from casually dating someone and then a pandemic hits and you're basically in retirement together. Yeah. Well, you got to get, you got to get serious or, or not serious pretty quick. I know a few of my friends who were like, oh, we've been dating like two or three months. And then it's just like the pandemic is like, okay, so am I, it's kind of back to pre-prep, you know, HIV stuff. Am I going to trust you with my life? Yeah. You know, am I, are you going to be good? Can I trust you with this? And, you know, I'm glad that you guys took the step. Yeah. So um, her name is Hillary Levitt. She's a, a TV producer, very talented, very smart, and had never seen but a mature leader, which is one of the things that came out during the pandemic where she had to admit to me that after we started dating, she was like, oh, shit, I need to watch but a mature leader. <laughs> <laughs> So the last question I ask, and I've asked everyone in season one, aside from the advice, just do it, what advice would you give up and coming filmmakers and directors? I think it's important for up and coming filmmakers and directors to make it happen for yourself, because the more that you empower yourself to keep the momentum of your career going, the more likelihood you will have of succeeding. And I think a lot of mistakes that people make is they say like, oh, I'm waiting for my agent to give me notes. I'm like, who gives a fuck what your agent thinks about your script? Or my agent said he was going to get it to blah, blah, blah person. And you're like, your agent's never going to do that. Like you get it to that person. So I think it's just important to really put all that stuff in your own hands because you're the only one that is going to care the most Um, so yeah, just do not put your dreams and hopes and desires into the hands of other people, like make it happen for yourself. Well, Jamie, this has been inspiring and lovely. You are a director who has made her own path and has made amazing stuff. And I can't wait for everyone to see, but I'm a cheerleader again after 20 years, because the thing holds up. I just saw it for the first time in a while, a few days ago. And I was like, oh my God, this is still just hilarious and lovely and wonderful. Yay. So thank, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the Outcast. <laughs> that was my little bottom of cheerleader. Yay! <laughs> now I'm going to do a cheer. <laughs> Two, four, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? David. David. Yay, David. Oh my God. I'm going to... I'm so embarrassed. I'm turning red. Um, and I can't wait to see League of Their Own. One hour uh, episodes on Amazon dropping probably in a year, but very queer, very fun, and a lot of really cool, funny women playing baseball. Thank you, Jamie, so much for being on. Thank you, David. And this has been The Outcast, presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash The Outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Ismail El-Sharif and Alan Konigsberg. The Outcast is mixed by Craig Lawrence Smith. Special thanks to Damian Navarro and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next time.